stop taking examples from other law firms. We have terrible customer service. We have terrible team engagement. We have terrible business acumen. Start going and looking at the companies you want to emulate. That's Eric Farber, founder and CEO of Pacific Workers and the best-selling author of The Case for Culture. Take your examples from hospitality. Take your examples from tech. Take your examples from the best businesses in existence. Put those into your law firm and see how it changes. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Eric Farber to discuss how leaders can improve their firm's culture, why you should manage processes, not people, and how to earn unwavering loyalty and commitment from your team. But if you can actually meet the human needs of acceptance, of growth, of mastery, of accountability, of the things that matter to humans, why can't they stick around for an incredibly long time? Creating the unpoachable person is about creating fans just like your clients. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Eric Farber is the founder and CEO of Pacific Workers, the lawyers for injured workers. He's also the best-selling author of The Case for Culture, how to stop being a slave to your law firm, grow your practice, and actually be happy. I began our conversation by asking Eric what led him to write this book in the first place. A number of different things led to writing the book. One is, I think we had some really great success in the law firm, and when really trying to sit down and analyze it, and I think you and I talked about this stuff a lot, right? That basically, when I look back at it, culture was really the core of what our our success was when I really analyzed it. You gave me the, the stage at the first summit, got off the stage, and I think you had said, hey, you should write some of these ideas down. So that's kind of where it came from, was really trying to analyze what our success was all about, and it was all about how we treated our people. In from the very beginning of the book, I mean, just right out of the gate, I know you tell a story about a previous employee who didn't seem to, to like you very much, but I, I like that you do this in the sense of highlighting that your culture wasn't what it, always what it was today. The culture wasn't anywhere close. I mean, and I had been in business for a long time, you know, and the culture in the previous incarnations prior to becoming the sort of the Pacific Workers, the workers' cop firm, as you know, I represented athletes and entertainers, and it really was my personality that brought the clients in. My phone was ringing 24-7. You know, I represented the Tupac Shakur estate for 18 years. I had a couple of hundred uh, professional athletes. It was a me culture and only me culture. Although I thought I was nice to people, I thought people liked me and respected me as a boss and as a leader. It took a long time to figure out that they really didn't. And that wasn't going to work in what we were doing in the workers' comp firm. 
And if you want to elaborate in terms of like what that employee had to say about you and it was this, I mean, would you say that like moments like these were really kind of the genesis of your interest in culture? It was the genesis. I mean, it certainly was the kernel of it. And the story, the basic story was, you know, that we were a small firm back then. We had just started sort of getting going in doing workers' comp for, for pro athletes. And I thought it was a pretty close person to me. It was a couple of people, actually. And she quit one day. She had tried to screw up all our financial, our financial documents, which she was kind of in charge of. And when we were digging in, I was reading sort of the instant messaging stuff. I think we used Skype back then to instant message between people. And I found that two of them were talking and they said, is there an N-word for Jews? And I just sort of sat back and was just sort of depleted, right? It was like I worked so hard. And to have that kind of reaction from somebody that I actually thought I was kind of close with, that it was there's that big a disconnect between the bosses and the people. You've got to bridge that gap somehow, right? And this this coupled with, uh, I imagine at the time, turnover was a concern. And I know you say uh, you can ABA study just talking about in general, even practicing attorneys in terms of the depression that they experienced, the anxiety, the stress. I mean, this is this is a major problem, right? So I mean, you were experiencing it firsthand, but it it seems like this obviously applies to firm owners all across the nation. I know it completely applies to firm owners all across the nation. It's interesting. When I was researching for the book, I was on Chambers, which Chambers is a tool to help people analyze what what firms are like. And it was interesting because they had something about culture for each one of them. And the only thing that actually talked about was how many hours you had to work as an associate. That was what culture was based on. And I thought it was amazing to see that. So it was the impetus for really looking closer. We were starting to grow really fast as a company, and that had a lot to do with our marketing. I realized that I understand marketing pretty well, but our turnover was outrageous. It was probably 70, 80%, I think, at the time. And then from a pure business standpoint, you have to look at that and say, how much is that really costing? And so there's a lot of estimates that that's 10 times the value of an hourly wage. So if you're paying somebody $50,000 a year, it's a $500,000 mess up. I don't know about you, but I can't sustain $500,000 mess ups every other week. So I know there's going to be people that hear this and I'm curious because I've heard the same thing. How do they get to that number, right? How do they get to the 10 times number? Because I imagine there's going to be listeners that hear this and they say, well, that sounds significant, but I can't connect the dots between how it's 10 times whatever you know someone's compensation would be. So there's a lot of different ways to calculate turnover. I mean, you could basically say how much is the ramp up time? How much does it cost to sit around and discuss the fact that you've got a key person leaving or even a non-key person, training those people, putting out the ads, doing the recruiting, et cetera, et cetera. That is a huge amount of time. I look at it a little bit differently. It's institutional knowledge. It's knowledge of the customers. How many customers and how many clients are you losing? We're a big shop, right? We've got a couple of thousand clients at any given time. We're onboarding anywhere from 150 to 200 new clients a month. Those clients build rapport and they build connection with those people, with people that are there. Just moving people around, you can lose clients. But when you're losing people, 
the clients are sitting there saying, what's going on over there? Why are they losing people? Why is it a new person that I'm talking to every week? It really puts that on a tenuous path as well. And so you start adding in all of these different things and the longevity is cut short for these employees. And that is just a massive, massive cost. How many clients did you lose or not get referred because the client experience has been broken? And Eric, I know we're going to use the, the word culture a lot throughout this podcast, but just right out of the gate, how do you, you, know, how do you define culture? There's a really, really smart guy that once said, uh, it's the air that you breathe in the company. It's what people do when the bosses aren't around. I'm talking about you, of course, because I think your talks on culture are just about as good as any, any I've seen. It's a very amorphous subject. You can define culture in a myriad of different ways, but it really is the feeling that people have in a company. And that goes for all the stakeholders, whether that's the clients, the employees, the vendors, everybody that the company touches, there is a feel. They talk about a look and a feel of a website. They talk about a look and a feel of a company, the messaging, every single thing Culture touches upon all of it. In fact, it's probably the only thing that actually does touch upon all of it, which is why I'm a big fan of the Drucker saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. So you go from you know, where you start the book, which is, is basically things couldn't be worse, to then there's the shift where you talk about culture is human and you state that a whole human shows up to the office uh, and you can either acknowledge it or ignore it. What do you mean by that? Look, we all deal with stuff. We all go through triumphs and tragedies as humans. And unless you're a boss that can recognize this, unless you have a culture that can recognize that people have frailty, that people have vulnerabilities, that people just, they experience when their mother gets sick, when their father gets sick, when they, they have tragedies in their lives. You know, we had somebody that worked for us for a very long time and she had just started working for us. She started working in the mailroom. I really liked her. She was smart. She was very shy. And just after we moved and started really expanding, so this is early, early days. We didn't have two pennies to rub together. You know, everything mattered. And her brother was killed. And her mother, her siblings, her father, not one of them had a company that would let them off work for more than three days. This is a brother was shot and killed, right? And I said, take as much time as you need. And don't worry, we're going to pay you every penny as though you were sitting right here. And she was out for about three weeks. And then actually there was all sorts of follow-up and everything else every dime was paid just as though she was sitting right in the office. And we said, we will take care of what you need to get done. Don't worry about it. I remember it was just over Halloween and I'm running to the office and, and I run into Walmart, which is a Walmart is probably the only time I've been to Walmart right by the office. And she's there and I see her, she's standing in line to go to the bank or something that's actually in there. And she came up and she hugged me and just started bawling, bawling. And she said, not one other person in her family could actually take care of all this stuff. That gesture, which we could not afford at the time, 
was talked about for her entire tenure there. Anybody who ever said a bad thing about the company, she was the bulldog that set them straight. So I, I want to dig into that because there's going to be people listening the where they'll hear a situation like this, or maybe they're experiencing one of their own in their own practice, and they want to express that empathy to a, an employee who might be dealing with personal struggles. But at the same time, like you said, at the time, you didn't have two pennies to rub together. They are also you know, struggling. They've got the business has goals to hit and they're struggling to keep the lights on. How do you kind of find the balance between the two? You do everything you can. You know, they used to say about charity, you know, you give till it hurts. That's exactly what you're dealing with. That's exactly what you're talking about in your own business. I've never been in, I haven't done anything I do for money. I could have made a lot more money doing lots of other things. I worked at one of the big talent agencies. I could have stayed there. I'm sure I'd be uber rich by now. I was at one of the studios, same thing. You delay, you live less, you save your money, you bring bag lunches until you could buy everybody lunch, all that type of stuff. You started a business, Michael. I, I was there in the early days, not the not the earliest of days, but I know there was probably immense struggle. You struggle now. I think Gary Vee says, you know, eat rice now so you can drink champagne later or something like that, right? You build this in. You build this into your budgets. You build it in on a monthly basis. I have, you know, in our budget lines have all sorts of things, but the miscellaneous side. And if that means that you got to work double time because you're going to be answering the phones because you had to give the receptionist, you know, two weeks off, then you're answering the phones. For anyone who thinks that Eric's views on going to extreme lengths to support employees may not make business sense, just look at what he's achieved. His firm is not only one of the fastest growing law firms in the nation, they're also one of the fastest growing private companies in America, earning a spot on the Inc. 5000. That said, it can be difficult to commit to such a significant investment in your culture. I asked Eric what words of encouragement he has for leaders who are on the fence. Look, their bank account's going to swell a lot more if they put a little bit of this stuff in, right? There's no question. Uh, how do you have the faith? Well, you've got to take this. You've got to go through the steps, right? So I've been asked to consult many, many times on, on helping a firm set its culture straight, so to speak. But it always starts with the values that a firm owner actually has. What do they value? And then are they actually creating a mission that is written down on paper? Do they have principles? Can you actually identify the values that they hold dear? Can they be written down? Once they start getting on this path, and it truly is a path of being a business owner and not a law firm owner, once they decide that they're going to be a business, then things can start changing. It's funny, there were two things that I knew that I was sort of going on the right path. One is, it's almost impossible for a lot of law firms to get bank loans because they look at law firms and they say, you're not businesses. I actually went to the bank and said, can you give us a loan? They said, sorry, you're a law firm. And I said, no, I'm a business. They said, prove it. And so I did, right? The other was when we were leasing our first big office space and the guy said, we've never done a lease with a law firm where we didn't get a personal guarantee. I said, why is that? And he said, because you're not businesses. And I said, yes, I am. I'll prove it. And the fact that they, they didn't have to make me sign a personal guarantee. These are things that will change your financial future. Because if you're truly running a business and you can prove it to the people that matter, like landlords and banks, that's when it starts to change. 
And when you say prove it, what, what types of things are we talking about that they're looking for? Is it a certain level of predictable revenue, systems in place? Like what, what types of things? All of the above. Can you tell a great story? Do you have marketing that is repeatable? One of my favorite quotes is half of my marketing dollars go wasted. I just don't know which half. If you have a repeatable system of marketing, that is one. If you have long-term employees, that's another. If you have actual financials, if you have an actual budget, if you can actually show them all of these different things, this is what a business is all about. Can you bring them into an office and it looks like a business? These are all those types of things. So I think we could agree there's many aspects of a business that you could have talked about in the book and you went all in that it's all people, it's all culture. And I'm glad you did this because I, I agree 100%. There's a part where you state that culture is discipline, but being disciplined is very different from being a disciplinarian. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I think I truly started understanding that when um, when I read Jocko Willing's book, and I think you actually had Jocko on, on a couple of things. He's brilliant. Discipline procedures and repeatable procedures that can be taught that goes all the way from onboarding somebody, even prior to onboarding somebody, that you're showing them when they walk in for an interview and they see their name on a wall and they see somebody that's greeted them and said, this is your agenda today for your interview process. And then they see their name on a wall and they see somebody brings them some coffee and they see that they're being treated well as an interviewee. It starts to set the discipline of the whole company because culture permeates every single aspect of the company all the way down to what's the setup in the lobby. And so discipline to me is the discipline of process and the discipline of execution. We have a process written down for just about everything. And I'm constantly, I mean, people forget about this stuff, but we even have a process for developing processes. And I thought it was kind of crazy until, you know, I went to visit one of our vendors and I met one of the people and he was director of process. And his only job, it's a big company, his only job was to make sure that the processes were developed through the right process. And it was such a big company that they had one person, that's all they did. So when I think of discipline, I am thinking about the discipline of how the phone is answered, how the dishes are done, how the mail is sorted, how if I want to go, and I don't really work in the law firm all that much anymore, my partner Bilal has basically taken over the day-to-day -day operations as a CEO. But if I want to go into our system, I know that checks are deposited on Tuesdays and Fridays. I know that new cases are uploaded within 48 hours. I know that the invoices are cleared out within, within 72 hours. I know without asking anybody exactly where it is. And trust me, they don't like to talk to me that much. I'm not that exciting to talk to. There's going to be people listening when you ask them, how's their firm culture? They're going to say, our firm culture is great. And I find that whenever I get that answer, that person is the least informed about their culture and their organization. What do you recommend as the best way to get the pulse on the culture of your firm, the, the morale within the firm? Like, how do you know basically, you know, where things stand? Starting out with a basic employee survey is not a bad way to go. As anonymous as possible and to make sure that they're getting some really good feedback. And then it's just talking to people. Talk to the people who, you know, your confidants, the, the people who are, you know, sort of your, quote, inner circle. And then really try to dig down. And then honestly, like one of the things I, I had started out doing from an early day was taking people 
out to lunch, right? Just, hey, you want to go to lunch? And then it started to become, because we have about 70 people now. So then it was really becoming like role specific or office specific. So I'd take the assistant case managers to lunch. And it was very important for me to always be perceived as we grew as a nice guy, but it didn't matter, right? The 21 year old person answering the phones at the front desk was still terrified of me no matter what I did. And I'm sure you've experienced that too, Michael, because we are the guys that like, they know we wake up at 4.30 in the morning and go to the gym and read books and do this. And like, there's not one minute that's sort of unaccounted for in our lives. At least that's what they think. So I'm an intimidating guy, even though I don't think I am. I certainly am to somebody that's like that. So you've got to do things like, you know, I came out to the office today. I don't come out to the where our studio is and I don't come out very often. As soon as I get here, you know, the person who, who's been here through all of COVID, even though we've been closed, we have lunch together every time I come out, every time. And so that does a lot because it starts to permeate throughout. How do you get a pulse? Talk to people. It, you mentioned a study in the in the book where somewhere around like over 70% of Americans are looking for a new job at any given time. And this is something that's very important to be mindful of. And then you also talk about like human needs, like and the idea of like how you can make people unpoachable. If you could elaborate on that and what you found in terms of whether it's certain benefits or even certain approaches that you've seen to be the most successful. There's a great book called The uh, An Everyone Culture. It was uh, done by Harvard Business Review. They studied three different companies in that. Decurian Company, which is a real estate company. Next Jump, which is a tech company. And Ray Dalio's company. And Charlie Kim, who's the head of Next Jump, really talked about this a lot, was make your people unpoachable. It's over 70% are looking for jobs. They're looking for their next opportunity. And we were told when we were young that you're going to have four different careers. You're going to work for five different places. There's no real reason for that. And I've come to realize more and more that people are doing that because most companies suck to work for. They just suck. And that's why people are jumping from place to place. But if you can actually meet the human needs of acceptance, of growth, of mastery, of accountability, of the things that matter to humans, why can't they stick around for an incredibly long time? So creating the unpoachable person is about creating fans just like your clients. If you have a client that says, you have to go see so-and-so, the personal injury attorney. He changed my family's life by what he did because of that car accident case. It's the same thing with your employees. It's the same damn thing. And trust me, if you have an employee that's that excited, that can be, yeah, they're not going to be running around like they're yelling and screaming all day long or hip-hopping through the, through the office. But if they're satisfied, then maybe they look. But then it's like, why would I change? This is a pretty good deal. So I overpay people. As soon as we could overpay people, we did. We provide lots of different benefits, as many benefits as we can. We ask them, what benefits would you like to see? And then, you know, to our top people giving, you know, free cars and making sure that people have the cell phones and people have this, but really treating them like people. And what does that mean? 
we have a marketing director, lover, Carmen. You've met Carmen before. She came to one of the summits, actually. That's a great example. Like one of her heroes is Gary V. And what does she post on her own social, which is pretty good. I mean, she came to us. She's an influencer, right? She's got like 100,000 followers. And she posts, boy, it's great to have a great boss that takes me to a conference with Gary V. Right? Like she got to meet him. It's all that kind of stuff, right? Find out what they want. People are individuals. We all bleed red and there's all sort of standard stuff, but you got to figure out what they're really looking for. We have a, a motto, the chair that you occupy at this company is temporary. How quickly you move to the next chair is up to you. If they're doing the exact same thing three years later and they've mastered it two years before, sure, they're going to be looking for something new. That's the need of growth. So you've got to find something new for them. And there's a very good possibility, statistically, a very good possibility that if you do these things, your company is going to grow so big that you're going to have plenty of new things. And you can go to them and say, what do you want to do next? Now, a lot of the things that you mentioned that people need to be, you know, let's say happy and engaged at the firm, you mentioned things rather than saying comfort. And let's say a lot of the Silicon Valley stuff, you say growth, accountability, which may surprise people, right? Because they think, hey, I just got the beer on tap and I got the, you know, the catered lunches. Why aren't these people happy? And, and instead you say it's something very different. It's not the food. <laughs> the food is there not for free lunches, but to create camaraderie. That's it, right? COVID hasn't completely changed this. It's changed it to some extent, but pre-COVID we had... 60 some events every year. And those are chances to rub elbows with the people that you work with. Every Friday afternoon is happy hour. We had monthly lunches. We had quarterly happy hours. Then we had three events, one with the community, one that you bring your families and one just for us. And those were real events. I mean, we spent a ton of money and we didn't start out spending a ton of money. When we started out, they were at this great southern place in Oakland that served fried chicken by the buckets, right? And we just order a ton of food and like turning over that credit card was painful. But the memories and what it created was amazing. Almost all of our original people are still with us. And we still, when somebody gets up and talks at our big holiday parties, which are now at the, like the terrace room and the big fancy places. And they cost, you know, 20, 30,000 bucks to put these things on. They get up and they say, remember when we were just, you know, in a big circle at a table at Southern cafe, the free food is not about the food. It is about what it creates. And as, you know, as a firm's culture evolves, I think the complexity of it is the fact that as you add team members or remove team members, those dynamics can change. You can have a cohesive group to a group that's, you know, is now adapting to new faces and new team players. How do you approach those changing dynamics as, as the firm's culture evolves? Danny Meyer, the brilliant restaurateur, says that culture is like the salt shaker in the middle of a table. And he wrote a great book called Setting the Table. And it doesn't matter what you do, you turn around, that salt shaker has moved from the middle of the table and you're constantly moving it back. And one, you're creating not only unpoachable people, but, you know, like weebles, right? It doesn't matter what they hear, they're going to be okay. And they, you know, they may wobble a bit, but they stand up straight again. You're creating a, a place that pivots. 
You're creating people with range and depth. Now you got to hire these people, obviously, before you can sort of create them into your own culture. So you got to hire great people and you got to have a great hiring process to find them. But then I could basically walk in and say, hey, workers comp division is closed. We're all going to do estate planning tomorrow. And everybody would go, great. When does training start? You're creating people that pivot because the company that it is today will not be the same company that it is in a year or three years or five years. So you're creating systems and processes and resilient people. You're preparing the child for the path and not the path for the child. Eric clearly understands and advocates for establishing a strong firm culture and why leaders and their teams should evolve along with it. I asked Eric to elaborate on his hiring process and how he onboards new team members. It starts with determining the best core values and the best things that people themselves need for that particular position. Once you've nailed that down, once you truly understand the psychology of what that job actually entails, then the next step is really creating the job posting. And the job posting is, is your marketing. You're marketing to the biggest, most important stakeholders you've got, your team. Then it's a very, very disciplined process that includes two telephone interviews and an in-person interview. And you're really trying to weed out the people. You've got to understand your values. You've got to really state them and understand how in talking to people, you can get stuff out of them. I'm a talker and it is challenging for me to sit in an interview and say nothing. And it very much is three sets of questionnaires. Lawyers should be really, really good at this because you're you're basically conducting a direct examination. Once you state a question like, do you have a process for decision-making? Yes, I do. The next thing is, is tell me more. You're allowed to have two questions when you're conducting these interviews after sort of the initial question is discuss, tell me more, describe, and you're getting people to open up and to talk. And I have plenty, I don't want to go into all of them, but I have plenty of sort of experiences one quick one is we hire for our case managers and our assistant case managers. They spend about six to seven hours a day on the phone with clients. We found that a lot of people who work at banks are really good. They're disciplined. They get it. They're solid employees and they understand big company process. And uh, we're on the phone with somebody. Uh, I said, tell me, is there anything that you just don't like doing that you have to be forced? And she said, I don't like talking on the phone. I was like, really? And that's the very first interview. Everything else, she checked the boxes. She was nice. She was smart. She was, she was driven. And I said, you know, this job, you spend about six to seven hours on the phone a day. And she said, yeah, not for me. We said, thank you very much. Good luck. See ya. We saved so much time because she, if we wouldn't have gone through this very, very direct process, she would have gotten hired. She would have got been on there and she would have gone, oh my God. And after two, after she would have gotten done with training, a week later, she would have quit or just been miserable and we would have never known it. So how, what was it like before then? It was like, you put out an ad, they came in for an interview. You said, boy, you've got a great resume. Oh, you worked at, used to work at so-and-so law firm. Great. We're just like there, but we've got free lunches. We've got this, we got that. When can you start? And you've learned nothing about them. Zero. There's always a tell. 
Always. And using that hiring process and then really onboarding them in a way that creates a great experience for them. Swag at the desk on their first day, a mentor to meet them, and they actually reach out to them before they even start that day. Taking them to lunch, we ask them, you know, we have a questionnaire, what's your favorite food? Would, you know, if you had to choose between these three different restaurants, which one would you go to? All that type of stuff. It sets a great stage because what you don't want them to do is go home at the end of that first day or the end of that first week and say to their significant other or their parents or their best friend, oh man, I think I made a mistake. You want them to go, wow, this place has got their shit together. So let's say once a team member is hired, let's talk about the first 90 days. And, and, and I'd like for you to just kind of compare kind of like the standard law firms, like the first 90 days from what exceptional looks like, because this is something you spoke about in the book as well. Yeah. The first 90 days, and it's actually even shorter than that, the first 30 days will determine how long somebody is actually going to be with your company. So day one starts before day one. As soon as they are hired, they get an email from their team lead and a mentor that says, hey, I am your mentor, your designated mentor. Here's where you're going to park. Don't worry about bringing lunch on the first day, et cetera, et cetera. They've now experienced the fact that, wow, this is, there's something a little bit different here. Very, very few companies do this. And I don't look to law firms to set my client or my team expectations. Law firms are just bad at this. I look to the best businesses. You've got to look outside law firms to get these ideas. So, and we sort of hobbled together a bunch of different ideas. We wanted to sort of do it all. Then they show up and somebody is there standing there waiting for them at 9 a.m. that says, here, let me take you to where you're going to be working. And everything has to be perfect. We've taken pictures of what perfect looks like and said, this is the setup all the way down to the screensaver, which says, welcome to the most important job you'll ever have. And it's got a swag bag, it's got t-shirts, it's got stuff in it, it's got a water bottle, it's got the stuff that is a different experience. And then it's got a handwritten letter from me and my partner that says, welcome, and saying a little bit, thank you for joining us. And then it basically has an agenda of what they're going to be doing for the next you know, few days. And then it's a matter of taking them through, they spend the first couple of weeks going through training and then taking our time and meeting with somebody new every single day, going out to lunches, et cetera, make them feel as part of the team. Here's what we don't do. We don't take them around everybody's cubicle and say, hi, this is Michael. Hi, this is Michael. Hi, this is Michael. Because there's no energy in that. That's somebody turning around. You're bothering them going, hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. And then next. We don't take them around to every cubicle meeting people. We don't show them where the kitchen is. They'll figure it out. We don't show them where the copy room is. We don't show them any of that stuff. We take them to different people that is pre-scheduled and it's exact. The times are almost exact, right? Then we give them the breaks and then we say, you know, give them a breather. We give them stuff to read about the company. We give them a book on our culture, which is really just a book of a bunch of pictures of, you know, parties and the events and the things that we've done great for people. We set the stage for what their 90 days is, but then the most important thing is we sit down and we say, okay, over the next 90 days, we wanna create some mastery for you. And then we map it out. Here are the things that you need to learn over the next 90 days. 
Let's set some pillars. Let's set some milestones. We want you to know that all you got to do is raise your hand and say, I'm struggling with this because most people are trying to hide the fact that they're struggling, especially in a new job. And we want them to be vulnerable because then they learn. Now, you state that firms should market their mission and their culture. Like, what, what do you mean by this? So externally, what do you mean? And, and what have been some of the benefits of taking that approach? Yeah, every company does this. Again, don't look to law firms of what they do, because all law firms do is basically go out there and say, look at what we want. You know, we're the best. I wish I had a dollar for every law firm website that said they're the best. What we do is we market who we are, because people want to do business with likable companies. It's the number one thing. We're then focusing our marketing on who we are as people, because have we gotten great results for clients? You're damn right. Have our competition gotten great results for clients? Of course they have. So we've got to market who we are and the values that we stand for and why we do this. And that was the very first thing we did. Remember when I said that I was a great marketer and we sort of like got a lot of business because of it. And then we sort of had to catch up with our culture. So we created a better company and it all works itself into a flywheel and keeps growing. We started with marketing the fact of who we are. What do we do for the community? What do we do for our people? Our cultural values and showing our culture to the people who are coming and they say, I like this place. I'm going to do business with this place. They look like likable people. And that's why you go out and you market it. That's why you market who you are and what your culture is and what your values are. So you state that nothing changes unless you do, the leader. And it seems like you've changed a lot over the last 20 years. I know that you, you describe in the book that you never saw yourself as being one of these people that would be meditating and all this other stuff. But if you could speak to what are some of the daily or even weekly habits that you practice now that, that help to keep you in peak state? This business, crazy enough, has only been around for about six and a half years. And so, look, I was not the person that I thought I was. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had to read you know, the nasty messages between people. I started changing a lot. I started reading a lot of books and I changed my own habits a lot. I wake up early. Initially, I think it was waking up because of the anxiety of running a very fast growing company. And then I started using that time for something productive. I started reading a lot more, trying to figure out how I could apply these business books and these business ideas to what I was doing. I wake up early, I go to the gym, I meditate, and I learn to meditate. I've really gotten into the Stoics and Stoicism. I go to bed early. I say no to most invitations. I write a lot. I journal a lot. And I sit there early in the morning and I realize my journaling is nothing special because my mind immediately goes to what have I got to get done at the business? And rather than what have I got to get done today, what do I want it to look like tomorrow? What do I want it to look like a year from now? And who do I want to develop to take over? Because as I said, like I'm not actually there, you know, day to day anymore. I'm off, you know, doing a new business. But building this business gave me gave me the freedom to sort of do whatever I wanted, like spend four months in 2019 writing a book. And here's the other thing is 
I don't think that the people at my firm were looking at me like going, oh, Eric's in Costa Rica writing a book and being pissed off about it. They were very encouraging about all of it. So change your habits, change your life. You can look at somebody today and say, these are your habits. You can tell what they're going to be like in five years. And Eric, I know you, so you've literally lived this stuff and you've gone from probably peak misery to peak engagement and literally wrote the book on it, on law firm culture. And really, I mean, it could even expand obviously well beyond law firms, but looking back at all this for, for people listening, if they could have one takeaway, let's say somebody is listening where they're extremely unhappy, their team is not engaged, you know, they don't even know where to start. Where, where do you recommend they start? Some self-assessment. That's where you have to start. Self-assessment and self-awareness is the most important trait of any great leader. Start with some self-assessment. What are you doing wrong? What are you doing wrong? That's where you have to start. And what does great actually look like? And stop taking examples from other law firms. We have terrible customer service. We have terrible team engagement. We have terrible business acumen. Start going and looking at the companies you want to emulate. If you are a boutique law firm, I don't want to hear the word boutique from law firms anymore, right? It's such a ridiculous statement, right? They're all boutiques and they're all concierge. If you are a boutique law firm, you better be Four Seasons in Rich Carlton. You better be that level. Otherwise, you're not even close. You're barely Motel 6. But take your examples from hospitality. Take your examples from tech. Take your examples from the best businesses in existence. Put those into your law firm and see how it changes. And Eric, as we come to a close, this being the, the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? Stop focusing on competition and start focusing on what needs to be done to make you the market leader. Start with the people in your charge. Start taking care of your people. Tell them what the vision is. And if you truly take care of them and you truly care about them, they're going to help that vision come true. It needs to be a shared vision. And I think people need to remember that nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. They don't care how good a lawyer you are. If they don't feel you care about them as individuals, you're wasting your time with them. I want to give a huge thank you to Eric Farber for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when Eric said that it is better to leave a position open in your firm than to hire the wrong person. Remember, focus on hiring the best, not simply the best available. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Eric Farber, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be speaking with investor, entrepreneur, and the host of CNBC's The Profit, Marcus Limonis. And the silliest example would be if I told you that I was going to open up a company and sell 8-track cassettes. I'm going to have an amazing supply chain process. My people are spectacular. We have a great system inside of our business. Process is refined. Our marketing is great. But the reality of it is, is that people don't want 8-tracks. So the product has to be relevant. It has to be market competitive. And it has to be something that people actually want today and tomorrow. 
That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Thank you.